Well, good morning. Let's pray together before we dive into this passage. In the beginning, God said, Father, your word has always brought life whenever it is spoken. The word of God is living and active. It is God-breathed. Breathe upon us now by your Holy Spirit. Cause your word to be living among us. As even as we are a church, we are, as some writers have said, a creature of the word. All of us are here because we have been brought forth through the living and abiding word of God. We have been brought into your kingdom through the word. Sanctify us in the truth now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. William Ross Wallace was a poet who lived between 1819 and 1881. And probably his most famous poem is entitled, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle Rules the World. And I want to share that poem with you. Blessings on the hand of women. Angels guard its strength and grace. In the palace, cottage, hovel, oh, no matter where the place. Would that never storms assailed it, rainbows ever gently curled, for the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Infancy's the tender fountain, power may with beauty flow. Mothers first to guide the steamlet, streamlets, from them souls unresting grow. Grow on for the good or evil, sunshine streamed or evil hurled, for the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Woman, how divine your mission. Hair upon our natal sod, keep, O oh, keep the young heart open always to the breath of God. All true trophies of the ages are from mother love impearled, for the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Blessings on the hand of women, fathers, sons, and daughters cry, and the sacred song is mingled with the worship in the sky. Mingles where no tempest darkens, rainbows evermore are hurled, for the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. I think we would say that that truth is captured in our text this morning. Who would have thought that two Egyptian midwives would overthrow a kingdom? at least the beginning of its overthrow. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 through 22. If you're a guest with us, we just began a sermon series through the book of Exodus last week. So we are going to be in the book a little while. It's quite a long book, but it's a wonderful book and full of much to teach us, as we saw last week, about God, about Christ, and about how to live the Christian life. So we're going to look at three scenes or three people in this story. First, we're going to look at Pharaoh. Then we're going to look at these Egyptian midwives, or sorry, these Hebrew midwives in Egypt. And then we're going to look at God and what he's doing in the midst of this too. So Pharaoh's demand, the midwives' disobedience, and God's decree. Let's look first of all at the Pharaoh's demand. We see here in verse 15, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, says to these Hebrew midwives who are named Shifra and Pua, verse 16, he says, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women not the Egyptian women, but the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stool. If it's a son, you shall kill him, and if it's a daughter, you shall let them live. As we saw last week, Pharaoh is growing increasingly frustrated by his inability to keep the Hebrew population at bay. He's been trying to limit them. He first tried to limit them through oppression, through slavery, political, and economic oppression. And now, since that didn't work, and God continued, as we saw last week, in the midst of oppression, to multiply them, 
So now he's decided just to kill them. If he can't stop their growth through oppression, then he will initiate a state-sponsored genocide that demands the killing of all Hebrew male babies. Now the question comes up is why would Pharaoh want to kill the male children? I mean, isn't it through the females that the other males would come? Why is he focusing his attention on the male children? Well, think about it. It was the males who would likely be the potential soldiers who would grow up and serve with possibly some enemy of Egypt, joining with them to fight against Pharaoh's regime. The women could be assimilated into Egyptian culture through intermarriage or ethnic cleansing over a period of time. The nationality was passed down through the male bloodline, and it was that bloodline that needed to be exterminated. So Pharaoh thought, the women are no threat to me. It's the males that are a threat to me. Oh, if he only knew who the real threat was. The threat to Pharaoh is the women, not the males. And whether it's the Pharaoh here in Exodus chapter 1 with his state-sponsored genocide, or it's Adolf Hitler's final solution for eliminating Jews, or it's communist China's one-child policy, or it's the pro-choice movement, opposition to life is always hatred for and opposition to God. It's a terrible thing, as we saw this morning in Psalm 2, to be a ruler that does not fear God. Because a ruler that does not fear God is a danger to the people that he's called to serve. We see that in Pharaoh here. And of course, the logical application is to the sanctity of all human life. That all human life is precious to God and is not to be exterminated by anyone. And, you know, next Sunday is nationally known as Sanctity of Life Sunday. And oftentimes this very passage is used to preach in many churches during that Sunday. We're a week ahead. But I agree with Russell Moore when he writes the following about Sanctity of Life Sunday. He says, I hate Sanctity of Life Sunday because I am reminded that we have to say things to one another that human beings shouldn't have to say. Mothers shouldn't kill their children. Fathers shouldn't abandon their babies. No human life is worthless regardless of skin color, age, disability, economic status. The very fact that these things must be proclaimed is a reminder of the horrors of this present darkness. I hate Sanctity of Life Sunday because I'm reminded that as I'm preaching, there are babies warmly nestled in wombs who won't be there tomorrow. I'm reminded that there are children, maybe even blocks from my pulpit, who will be slapped punched, and burned with cigarettes before nightfall. I'm reminded that there are elderly men and women languishing away in loneliness, their lives pronounced to be a waste. But I love Sanctity of Life Sunday because the entire Bible throbs with God's commitment to the fatherless and to the widows, his wrath at the shedding of innocent blood. I also love Sanctity of Life Sunday when I think about the fact that I serve a congregation with ex-orphans all around adopted into loving families. I love to reflect on the men and women 
who serve every week in pregnancy centers for women in crisis. And I love to see men and women who have aborted babies find their sins forgiven. Even this sin and their consciences cleansed by Christ. So yes, it's true. We should hate Sanctity of Life Sunday. We should hate the fact that Planned Parenthood in 2016 aborted 321,384 human beings. That's 881 a day, every 98 seconds. 1.9 million from 2011 to 2016 alone. 1.9 million. But we should also love Sanctity of Life Sunday because there is a small army of shifras and puas at work in our culture, many of them going unnoticed and unacclaimed, working hard to push back the darkness and fight for the cause of life, and we have them in our own community, in our own church. For instance, there's the CareNet Pregnancy Center in our own community, where I was told that the day following New Year's Day, that six abortion-minded women came into the clinic, and four of them came back for ultrasounds. That's a win for the cause of life. There's, I'm also reminded of the care for fostering, where January 16th, this very Wednesday, our sister church, Pleasant Valley, is hosting Orphan Care Alliance for parents who are interested in learning about fostering, or if they don't feel called and aren't particularly in a stage of life right now where they can foster, they can at least learn about being a respite family, which is so important. A respite family is a family that's just committed to come along, coming alongside families that are fostering to give them respite to give them breaks so that they can continue the good work that they're doing because it's not easy and we have an initiative in our own commonwealth that's advancing to seeking to put the cause of foster care back in the church's hands where it belongs anyway and many good things are happening in that regard if you are interested in that you can learn more about that it's january 16th that event um, 6.30 to 8.30 over at Pleasant Valley if you're interested in learning more about how to be a foster family or a respite family. And then, of course, we have Mentor Kids Kentucky, which seeks to care for young boys and young girls who are usually in single-parent situations to come alongside them and mentor and help and assist. And we'll have an opportunity to learn about them a little bit more next Sunday, even as a few of them will be in our lobby to introduce you to that ministry if you're interested in learning more about them. So, Praise God for the ways in which our community and the churches in our community are seeking to promote the cause of life and push back the cause of death. So that's what we see in Pharaoh's demand. We see a picture of someone who is at any cost going to cause death to come if he can promote what he wants to get, which is ultimately subduing the Hebrews in his empire. Point number two, we're going to look at the midwives' disobedience. The midwives' disobedience. Look at verse 17. After they get this request from Pharaoh, this demand from Pharaoh, which, by the way, is nothing to be taken lightly. This man can take your head off if you don't, li if you don't do what he says. This was not a request. Hey, you might, Shifrapua, you might want to consider this. He said, no, do this. And what did they do? Verse 17, the midwives feared God 
and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Verse 18, so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? Verse 19, the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous and they give birth before the midwives come to them. Let's talk about this passage, because this passage has been no small source of debate among the church for centuries. And the question revolves around this, is what were these midwives doing? Did they tell the truth? Did they lie? How is God pleased with their deception? How is God pleased with their lying? Well, I suppose you have three options here when you come to this. The first option would be, and many commentators take this view, is they didn't lie. They didn't lie. We don't have everything that they said. Their entire statement is not recorded, but what we do have is factual. These Hebrew women were having babies quickly, and maybe they were just using that as an opportunity to, you know, to say a little bit of a, put it in a little bit of a grander way, hyperbolize it a little bit. Say, listen, they're, they're having babies quickly. We can't get there fast enough. There's nothing lying about that just because they use a little hyperbole. They just didn't include all the information. So does not including all the information constitute a lie? When someone is seeking to execute profound injustice against little male baby boys, is Pharaoh owed the whole truth? That's what some commentators would say. A second option is, yes, they lied. This is the way John Calvin saw it. He saw that what they did was a sin, a profound sin. He says, in the answer of the midwives, two vices are to be observed since they neither confess their piety with proper ingenuity, and what is worse, they escaped by falsehood. Calvin would have said, take the licks, tell the truth. Is God sovereign or is he not? You tell the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God. And if God chooses to deliver you, great. If he chooses to allow Pharaoh to kill you, better to be true to the truth than falsehood. There is another view of this, though, and it's the view I'm inclined to take, which is not that it was an outright lie or that it was an outright uh, truth, but they were shrewd and minimally deceptive. Think about this. The whole point of chapter 1 of Exodus is to show the contrast between how Pharaoh's behaving, who thinks he's a king, thinks he's the ruler, and how God's behaving, who's the true ruler. And so what we have here is, in the beginning, it's, what, is, what does it say about Pharaoh? That he was shrewd. That he was shrewd. And he was, he was trying to execute his things covertly, going behind the scenes and trying. He knew that he couldn't out and out say, make this huge announcement right out of the, to the Egyptian empire, hey, kill all the Hebrew boys. He knew that would have probably caused some insurrection and that had been probably uncomfortable to a lot of his Egyptian citizenry. So he decided to do it a little more covertly. I'm going to oppress them first, and if that doesn't work, well, we'll go, we'll ratchet it up a little bit higher, and we'll, we'll implement some genocide here. Quietly, though. Maybe the Egyptian, most Egyptians won't even really know about it until it's all gone, and then they'll look back and say, hey, that was a really good decision he made. 
I really like it. It seems like we have less Hebrews around here now. I wonder how that happened. But what we have here is the midwives being shrewd. And what they say is so outlandish that it could hardly be considered outright deceit. I mean, think about what they're saying here. They, they come and say, because the Hebrew wives, midwomen, are not like the Egyptian women, for they're, they're just, they're hoss cats. I mean, they're, they're, they're so vigorous, they're having babies before we can even get there. I mean, it's just, it's just too much work. We're overrun. And it's more like an insult. It's like, listen, God is so smiling on the, the Hebrew women and blessing them that what do you want us to do? And Pharaoh's satisfaction with their answer seems to indicate that he's maybe a few bricks short of a pyramid. And he just lets it sit there. And notice something else, which I think is very, very important in this passage. There is nothing in this text where God considers any of their actions to be sinful, wrong, or blameworthy at all. In verse 15, they are given names so that they can be remembered as heroines in the history of Israel. In verse 17, it notes that they feared God. That's always a good thing. In verse 20, it says, so God dealt well with the midwives. And again in verse 21, because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Four different verses all strongly suggest, in fact, explicitly state that God was pleased with everything they did. Now, it's dangerous to seek to fear God in the real world. And there's a difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. The fourth commandment said to honor the Sabbath, and then David and his men ate some of the showbread on the Sabbath, and Jesus said, that's not a violation of the fourth commandment. The fifth commandment says to honor your father and mother, and yet Jesus comes along and says, you can't be my disciple unless you hate your mom and dad. That's not a violation of the fifth commandment. Neither did the Old Testament consider it a violation of the sixth commandment. Don't kill when you are engaging in protecting yourselves or your families by killing an intruder. There are provisions in the law for that. Peter and John, before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5, they say, you judge for yourself whether it's right to obey God or man. We have to follow God even if it means going against governing authorities. I think that's exactly the same what's going on here. This is the state overstepping the state's bounds and getting into the realm of God. And at that point, God's people are called to resist the state. Carefully, calculatedly, humbly, lovingly, but truly resist. Think of the missionaries who duct tape thousands of dollars to their stomach and thighs and bring it to churches underground all over the world. Think of Christians smuggling Bibles into countries where the Bible is outlawed. When a government in the Middle East asks an American pastor who's coming over to train Iranian pastors, what are you doing here? You say, I'm visiting friends. You don't say, I'm here to convert Muslims and lead them to the, to the truth of Jesus Christ. Get him out of here. When the Center for Medical Progress did the undercover videos exposing the evil of Planned Parenthood, you know how they got in? 
They got in by being shrewd and minimally deceptive. They said they were interested in partnering with Planned Parenthood and learning more about their work. And when they were doing such things, was that wrong? Was God angry with that? If you believe he was, I think you're maybe more religious than Christian. Because the Pharisees did the exact same thing. Hey, 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 hey. Why are they picking heads of grain on the Sabbath? Because they're hungry? And so it's dangerous to seek to fear God in the real world because situations like this come up. Ethical conundrums and difficulties come up. But I think we learned something here about something very important, which is the role of risk-taking civil disobedience in the cause of the gospel. If we would do God's will and see his kingdom come to earth, we must be prepared, perhaps now than, more than any other time has already been mentioned in our country's history, we must be prepared to stand up with God against hatred and injustice, even at the risk of our own lives. On occasion, this may require us to engage in acts of civil disobedience to obey the moral laws of God. I wonder if you've heard about Pastor Wang Yi and early reign Covenant Church. Just a month or so ago, Chinese Reformed Pastor Wang Yi and his wife and more than 100 Christians who attended early reign Covenant Church were arrested in the city of Chengdu by Chinese authorities. And by the way, a missionary to that congregation was in our community just a week or so ago with our brother Craig Bratcher over at Dawson Baptist Church. The members of that congregation were charged with, quote, inciting subversion to state power. Sounds a lot like Exodus 1 to me. If convicted, Wang and his parishioners could face up to 15 years in prison. Some of the church leaders and members have since been released but remain under house arrest. Earlier this year, Wang wrote the declaration, My Declaration of Faithful Disobedience, a letter to be published by his church should he be detained for more than 48 hours. Here's a portion of that letter. I must point out that persecution against the Lord's church and against all Chinese people who believe in Jesus Christ is the most wicked and the most horrendous evil of Chinese society. This is not only a sin against Christians. It's also a sin against all non-Christians. For the government is brutally and ruthlessly threatening them and hindering them from coming to Jesus. There is no greater wickedness in the world than this. If this regime is, only, is one day overthrown by God, it will be for no other reason than God's righteous punishment and revenge for this evil. For on earth, there has only ever been a thousand-year church. There has never been a thousand-year government. There is only one eternal faith. There is no eternal power. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief toward those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me and that he would grant me patience and wisdom that I might take the gospel to them. Separate me from my wife and children. Ruin my reputation. Destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life, and no one can raise me from the dead. 
And so, respectable officers, stop committing evil. This is not for my benefit, but rather for yours and your children's. I plead earnestly with you to stay your hands, for why should you be willing to pay the price of eternal damnation in hell for the sake of a lowly sinner such as I? Jesus is the Christ, Son of the eternal living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my King and the King of the whole earth, yesterday, today, and forever. I am His servant and I am imprisoned because of this. I will resist in meekness those who resist God and I will joyfully violate all laws that violate God's laws. Praise God for Pastor Wang Yi. Pray for him. Pray for Early Rain Covenant Church. You can find it on Facebook. Type in pray for early rain. There's a whole group that keep you updated and you can pray. You know, there's another application here that I don't want to pass by before getting on to God's involvement here. And that is the crucial role of godly women in redemptive history. I don't know if you've thought about this, but the absolute crucial role of godly women and the way God uses godly women in redemptive history. This passage reminds us that the Lord gives women a crucial and indispensable role in his kingdom. Women are not second class. Women are not inferior in terms of the kingdom of God and the value they bring to the kingdom of God. See, Pharaoh believed that only the Hebrew men were a threat to him. But godly women are a mighty force in the hand of God. Think of Rachel Denhollander, our sister in Christ, who exposed Larry Nasser, the Olympic physician who literally abused hundreds and hundreds of girls. When she was the last to testify at his trial, she said, Mr. Nasser, little girls don't stay little forever they grow into strong women that return to destroy your world. Praise God for strong women, godly women that love him. Where would the church be? Where would the history of redemption be without godly women with backbones? How many times has God used faithful women in the storyline of Scripture, women acting bravely at decisive moments to preserve the endangered line of the Messiah, often in the midst of vulnerability and oppression? We see it here, but we also see it with Tamar that we considered when we studied the life of Moses in Genesis 38. We see it in Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. We see it with Ruth. We see it with Esther who all step forward at key moments to preserve the Redeemer's line and move it toward fulfillment. And then you come to the New Testament, and it just takes your breath away. Let me give you ten quick examples. First of all, women are the first to believe that Jesus and his forerunner soon would be conceived in Luke chapter 1. Zechariah disbelieved, and he became mute. Joseph wanted to divorce Mary quietly. But who are the people that are full of faith? Mary. And Elizabeth received the announcement and publicly declared their praise of God. Now, I know Simeon did too, okay? So it wasn't exclusively women, but you notice at the birth announcement, the women are the ones full of faith. Also in Luke chapter 1, we see that Elizabeth and her child, John the Baptist, in utero are the first recorded people to recognize the Messiah's arrival. 
And then Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55, Mary voices the New Testament's first poetic song, praising God for the Christ and God's work and condescension to her. John chapter 2, Mary again is the first to expect and request a miraculous sign. Also, we see a woman in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, who is the first recorded Gentile to recognize Jesus as the Messiah and the first to go tell a community about him. And then in Luke chapter 8, it's told that only women are said to give general, regular financial provision. Jesus built his ministry on the back of faithful, generous women who were often providing for him out of their own means. And interestingly, no woman is ever recorded as acting against Jesus. Jesus' only recorded enemies are men. Women were the last to stay with Jesus at the cross in John chapter 19, along with the disciple John. A woman is the final person Jesus directly ministered to before his death, namely his mother. Women were the first ones tasked with proclaiming news of the resurrection in Matthew 28. At this point in history, women were not even regarded as reliable witnesses in a court of law. And yet the Son of God chooses them, because he knows he's raised from the dead, and you can't stop the truth, that women will be the one who will carry that news first. All four gospel writers insist that women were the first to discover and herald the news about the empty tomb. A woman is the first to see the resurrected Lord, to hear his resurrected voice, the first to touch his resurrected body, and the first name he utters is a woman's name. And think about this. Of Paul's four greetings that include specific names in Romans 16 and Colossians 4 and 2 Timothy 4, a woman's name is listed first in three of them showing the value also that Paul placed upon the ministry of godly women. So all that to say, I just want you to appreciate the value, and I want you brothers to value your sisters in Christ as co-heirs of the kingdom and as fellow citizens in God's household. Yes, we have different roles. Yes, we have all those things. But our value and our worth and our contribution to the kingdom is the same in God's eyes. And so we must value and esteem and honor one another just as Shifra and Pua are honored here by Moses in this account. Point number three, God's decree. So we've looked at briefly Pharaoh's demand, and we've seen the midwives' disobedience. Now look at God's decree. What God does through this is frustrate the plans of Pharaoh again. Look at verse 21. Verse, sorry, verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Despite all his clever schemes, Pharaoh ended up being thoroughly outsmarted. Did you notice that? No matter what he does in this chapter, no matter what's going on, God's people are growing. We saw last week, even after all their patriarchs had died, Abraham's gone, Jacob's gone, Isaac's gone, Joseph's gone. That's the end of God's story, right? Nope. Verse 7, the people of God are growing. And then Pharaoh says, "Uh uh-oh, we got to oppress them. So he oppresses them. And what do we learn in verse 12? The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Oh, no, what's going to happen? Maybe maybe I'll try to kill them. What's going to happen? No, verse 20, the people multiplied and grew very strong. Pharaoh's not going to stop God. Pharaoh is not going to stop God. By the end of the chapter, We find him right where he was at the beginning, 
with egg on his face, unable to do anything politically, economically, socially, or violently to stop God's work. Now, this has an application to us, brothers and sisters, about the, suf- about the role of suffering in the growth of the church. None of us wants it. None of us desires it. But it is an irrefutable fact that the, gro- the church grows most fast or m- most quickly under persecution and suffering. The pattern of growth through suffering has been repeated many times in the history of the church. Let me read you just the words of Charles Spurgeon, who will preach this far better than I ever would. He says, whenever there has been a great persecution raised against the Christian church, God has overruled it, as he did in the case of Pharaoh's oppression of the Israelites, by making the aggrieved community more largely to increase. The early persecutions in Judea promoted the spread of the gospel. Hence, when after the death of Stephen, the disciples were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, and the result is thus given, therefore... They, were, they that went, were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. That's what persecution does. It creates more churches because it sends Christians away from the city center into different areas. And you know what they do? They plant churches there. So good luck with that. You try to stop the church and it spreads the church. So too, when Herod stretched forth his hand, Spurgeon says, to vex certain of the church and kill James, the brother of John, with the sword, what came of it? Why, Luke tells us in almost the same words that Moses had used, the word of God grew and multiplied. Those terrible and bloody persecutions under the Roman emperor by no means stayed the progress of the gospel. The church probably never increased at a greater ratio than as when her foes were most fierce to assail and most resolute to destroy her. The Reformation never went on so prosperously as when it was most vigorously opposed. You shall find in any individual church that wherever evil men have conspired together in a storm of opposition has burst forth against the saints, the heart of the Lord has been moved with compassion. Be patient then, my brethren, amidst the persecutions or trials you may be called upon to bear, and be thankful that they are so often overruled for the growth of the church, the spread of the gospel, and the honor of Christ." Scott Sauls, pastor in Nashville, says, If Christian leaders and influencers and organizations do fall on hard times, if we lose favor and become a persecuted minority, it might actually mark the beginning of our truest impact. Any serious reading of Scripture confirms that it's not from a place of worldly or political power and privilege that God's people through the centuries have found their firmest footing. It's from a place of weakness and disadvantage. Historically, Christians have most influenced society not as some sort of moral majority, but as a life-giving, love-driven minority. That is God. That is the story of Scripture. We win by losing. Lose it all and gain it all. Let us be inspired by the words of novelist Madeline Engel when she said, We draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are. Oh, God, get that out of the church. But by showing them a light that is so lovely that, we, that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. You can't out-argue the world into the kingdom. You out-love them. 
That's it. It's all we got is love. Life laying down, sacrificial, I will die for you, love. That's it. It's the only thing that will change a heart. It's the only thing that changed your heart. It was a Savior who laid his life down out of love for you. That's the only thing that will change anybody's heart. Of course, arguments have a role. Government has a role in stemming the tide of evil, but don't get me wrong. And arguments need to be given. I'm not arguing against no apologetics, and we never write things that you know the culture needs to hear about issues, all that stuff. But I'm just saying, that's all supplementary. That's not the main thing. The main thing is the gospel and a life of sacrificial love behind it. And notice here, just a couple more applications before we conclude. I want you to appreciate the blessing that comes from fearing God. The blessing that comes through fearing God. Now, ironically, the midwives are blessed by the very thing that Pharaoh enlisted their help to prevent. Why did Pharaoh call upon the midwives? Because he wanted the population to decrease. How did God bless the midwives? By causing the population to increase. Not only did God reward Shifra and Pua immediately with families, but their names have gone down in biblical history, contrary to the unnamed Pharaoh. Who got the name? Who got the glory? Pharaoh doesn't even get named. The only names that will be remembered here are two courageous Hebrew midwives named Shifra and Pua. You will know them for all eternity, God says. Even though Pharaoh's name means great house, and he had pyramids built to carry on his name, instead the only names that remembered here and for all eternity are of those who feared God and protected life. The great and powerful of this world, brothers and sisters, will fall beneath the ash heap of history. The great and powerful of this world who do not love God and serve God will be eternally forgotten. Pharaoh serves the purposes of God even as he hates the people of God. Everything Pharaoh does ultimately serves to tie a noose around his own neck. Everything he's doing is tying a noose around his neck and loosing the bonds of God's people. Everything he's doing. You think the patriarchs dying means the end of God's promise? No way. You think the oppression of people is going to stop the promises of God? No way. I'll multiply them. And as we'll see next week, Pharaoh's own daughter, will adopt Moses and become the source of her own father's downfall. Don't you love the irony of God? He who sits in heaven laughs. Go ahead, do all you want against my people and see if I don't come through for them. Brothers and sisters, God will always, 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 always use the weak to shame the strong. Always. When we fear God, there is nothing that man can do to us, and that drives evil men crazy. Think about Paul sitting in that Philippian or sitting in that jail. 
And they say to him, we're going to kill you. And he says, to die is gain. Okay, we're going to let you live to live as Christ. <laughs> okay, then we're going to leave you in jail. Fine, I'm going to write letters to strengthen the churches and convert all your guards. And sing hymns. What, are you going to shut my mouth? See the fear of God and how it em emboldens the church of God. And people don't know what to do with that. But we can't do anything to this guy. But you know what? For all the examples that we see here, of all the encouragement that we receive from the way these midwives are behaving and all the things that God is accomplishing through them, we need to appreciate one thing. This passage is mostly and chiefly about how our salvation in Christ was obtained. How we're saved. You say, how in the world? What? How do you get from Egyptian midwives helping little baby Hebrew boys to Jesus? Let me take you there. We should remember that these women not only did something for the Hebrew children, but in doing so, they did something for us. Because they saved these babies from spiritual death, we will be saved from spiritual death. Because they saved these babies from physical death, we're going to be saved from spiritual death. How? How, how so? Because, listen, if you don't have these women, you don't have Moses. You don't have any Hebrews. To, you don't have a nation of Israel. And as a result of that, you don't have the Exodus. You don't have David. You don't have Jesus. Because there is no fulfillment. See, what we have to appreciate is behind this text, it's not just a war between Pharaoh and, and the midwives. It's a war between God and the serpent. Pharaoh is representing the satanic serpent who's come into the world to stop the seed from coming in. But in so doing, he's crushing his own head. He's Even as he's trying to bruise the heel of Israel, he's crushing his own head. And so God is advancing his purpose. Without these women, the Israelites would have been wiped out and there would have been no fulfillment of the messianic promise. We'd have no savior because there'd be no Jesus. But praise God, just as these Hebrew boys lived in spite of the efforts at genocide, so our Lord Jesus Christ lived through the baby-killing leadership of Herod. Matthew chapter 2. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained for the wise men. The serpent's trying to give it one last shot. He tried with Pharaoh, he's trying with Herod, and it's not going to work. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel.
That's our Savior. That's why we're here. That's why we're going to heaven. That's why we're going to escape the wrath of God. That's why we're going to live forever in eternal life and eternal bliss with God. Because this Herod could not stop. Just like that Pharaoh could not stop the Messiah from coming into the world. And so if you're a Christian here this morning, which means you have transferred your trust from yourself exclusively to Jesus Christ, and you have turned from your sin, and you are turning from sin, and seeking to follow him and pursue him, then this is good news for you. Pharaoh pursued the death of the male Israelites. Herod, like him, tried to do the same thing. But behind both Herod and Pharaoh was Satan, the one who was seeking through the, both of them to stop the coming of the Messiah into the world, and he did not succeed. And even when he thought he had, crucifying him under the Roman government, while this Messiah's heel was bruised, in so doing, the serpent's head was crushed. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning and what an encouragement it is to see you at work in history, in the lives of your people. Thank you for the ways in which we are instructed this morning to what it means to fear you, what it means to live faithfully for you, but even more than that, what it means to have a Savior who has feared you and lived faithfully for us, the one who has escaped the knife of Herod and grew up as a man who at 30 years entered ministry and continued his perfect life of obedience and began announcing that the kingdom of God has come and preaching the gospel and healing and forgiving sin and then taking his perfect spotless life as the Lamb of God to the cross to take away the sins of all those who would ever trust and believe in him. If anyone here among us this morning is yet to look to that Savior and live, we pray that they would this morning, that they would cast their sins off and they would flee for refuge into the only one that can be a true and lasting refuge. May they kiss the Son this morning. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.